That was awesome. Absolutely. And you need to grab your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 7. We are going to do communion, but we're going to do it after the sermon. And again, we are so glad that you are here today. We're actually concluding our seven-week look at the Sermon on the Mount. And if you didn't bring a Bible, grab a pew Bible. And if you have a pew Bible, Matthew chapter 7 is probably on page 961. I say probably because about 80 to 90% of our pew Bibles are our older pew Bibles. We do have some new pew Bibles, and it's going to be on a different page. But Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, and you want to be in Matthew chapter 7. We have been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been looking at what's Jesus trying to teach us from this most famous of sermons from long ago. And so we had an appetizer sermon the last Sunday in October. We kind of did shotgun style, all the different things we're going to be looking at. And then beginning with November 1, we've grabbed a chunk of Scripture each week. First week, we looked at the first part of chapter 5. And we looked at the Beatitudes, and we looked at how Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world. Second week, we looked at Jesus and the Old Testament. What was Jesus' perspective on the law and the prophets? A lot of people say, uh, that's the old covenant, that's not relevant for my life today, I'm a new covenant kind of person, and that's not Jesus' perspective. Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill it. Week three, first part of Matthew chapter six, model spirituality, ideal spirituality. What's Jesus have for us on on topics like giving and prayer and fasting and forgiveness? Week four, we looked at the things of heaven and the stuff of earth. And, And how do we balance money and material possessions? And what do we do with that thing we call worry? Last week, Adam did an awesome job tackling this idea of judgment and this idea of asking the Lord for things and this idea of how do we sum up the law and the prophets. Jesus said in uh, verse 12 of chapter 7, all the law and the prophets are summed up in this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then today we're talking about how it's tough to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to be looking at some different pictures that Jesus gives us about how it really is a challenge to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, I think sometimes preachers like myself, we have done a disservice in trying to tell the story of Jesus. We've made it sound like, man, it is easy to be a Christian. It is simple to be a Christian. I think it's easy to become a Christian, but I think living the Christian life, it's a journey. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And if you're in it just because it's convenient or it's easy or it's simple, um, you're going to be disappointed. It's tough to enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's have a question. We've kind of had an opening question each week. What are the most challenging adventures in your life if you're sitting next to someone that you know and you like, or even if you don't know them, or even if you don't like them? Just ask that question anyway, and let's find out what are the most challenging adventures in your life. Ready, get set, go. This is the time to talk. What are the most challenging adventures in your life? Most challenging adventures in your life. I I really thought about this this week and couple things came to mind. Uh, last summer, summer of 2014, I trained for my first ever triathlon. 
And that was a real challenge. I mean, I found myself swimming laps at the YMCA at 7 o'clock in the morning. I've not really ever been a regular swimmer since my high school days. I found myself swimming in Lake Decatur on Tuesday and Thursday evenings. Boy, do I never want to do that again. I found myself running. I don't really like to run. I found myself doing extended bike rides. But I'll tell you, when triathlon day came and I was able to do it, boy, that was awesome to have the endurance to swim in a lake. To have the ability to bike 19 miles, to have the ability after all that to run 4.5 miles, I felt really good. Because the bottom line is when you have an incredible adventure that you're pointing to, when you're able to pull it off and it hasn't been easy and it hasn't been simple, you feel really good about that. I thought about a spiritual adventure that was a part of my life. And that was the first time I tried to read through the Bible in 90 days. And you think, well, read through the Bible, that's not hard, is it? Well, when you read through the Bible in 90 days, you're looking at about 40 to 45 minutes of Bible reading every day. That means some days comes real easy. Maybe it's your day off. You grab a cup of coffee. You build a fire. You read for 45 minutes. But what about those helter-skelter kind of days? When, when your kids are needing this and your wife needs this and you, your job calls you to do this and you find yourself at 11 o'clock at night and you haven't read your Bible yet today. Guess what? If you're going to accomplish that, you're going to read your Bible at 11 o'clock at night. And I remember when I got to day 89 and was able to finally finish that last part of Revelation. Man, what a great feeling. Something that hit me during Sunday school class that I didn't mention in first service, Daniel plan for me. That was a real challenge for me to really try to rethink how do I eat? What food do I eat? I mean, it wasn't just, you know, lunchtime and, and supper time and breakfast time, but it was when we go shopping. It was when, when we're in the office and someone brings in, you know, awesome uh, scotcheroos or something along those lines. But you know, at the end of that time, man, I felt great. Here's the point. The reality is that accomplishing a challenging adventure, it's never an easy or simple undertaking. But when you're able to do it, there's this sense of satisfaction. There's this sense of accomplishment. And you feel good and you should feel good because you saw the challenge you accepted the challenge, and you went for it. The big idea today that I want you to take from this chunk of Scripture, the end of the Sermon on the Mountain, is this. Jesus calls us to be a follower, not simply someone that admires from a distance. Not just a fan, but Jesus calls us to be followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls us to accept the challenge to go the extra mile. Last, uh, yesterday afternoon, I was able to watch Christmas in the Chapel at Lincoln Christian University. And man, it is awesome. They're singing, they're dancing, they're acting. And you know, you sit there and you think, boy, how cool would it be to be in Christmas in the Chapel? How awesome would it be if Cody and I and our Christmas sweaters showed up at Lincoln Christian University and said, sign us up. We want to be the mannequins. We want to do something. We want to be in Christmas in the chapel. But then you start thinking about all the practices. And you start thinking about all the sacrifices. And you think about all the meals that I miss at home and all the basketball games I wouldn't be able to watch that my son is playing. And I realize, you know, I'm okay with just being an admirer. I'm okay with just showing up for two hours and, and nodding away and saying, wow, that's really cool. I'm not going to jump in and say, I want to be all in and be a follower and be a participant. I want to just, from a distance, admire too many people that claim the title Christian, claim the title disciple, 
claim the title follower of Jesus, in reality are just admiring from a distance. And the problem is this, admiration is so much easier. It's so much more simple than discipleship. So with that said, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus lays out what following after him really looks like. And it's not hard to visualize. It's not hard to to, to understand intellectually. But boy, is it tough to put it into practice. So let's dive in four things. Number one is this. Followers of Jesus are called to enter through the narrow gate. They're called to enter through the narrow gate. Jesus said in verse 13 of chapter 7, enter through the narrow gate. Wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So right now, the same people that you were talking with the whole adventure about, I want you to talk about this question right here. What is narrow gate living? Ready? Get set. Go. Narrow gate living. What is it? What's it look like? How do we define it? How does it play out in our life? Narrow gate living. Think about that for just a moment. What's that look like? How's that play out in my life? How, how can I be sure that I'm entering through the narrow gate? I think there's a lot of ways that you could define narrow gate living. I think for some of us, just making a commitment to be a regular in worship. There's a million things you could do on a beautiful December day like this. And just to say, it's a priority to be in worship. It's a priority to be in the Word. It's a priority to gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ, even though maybe my spouse won't come with me, or my children won't come with me, or my parents won't come with me, or my friends won't come with me. For some, that's narrow gate living. For some, it's saying even though everybody else in the crowd is doing it, whatever it is, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be different. I'm going to be distinctive. I don't care what anybody else thinks. Do you know the name Tim Tebow? Tim Tebow was a Heisman-winning quarterback for the Florida Gators. He won two national championships. He was an NFL quarterback for several years, and he's kind of become like a poster child in a lot of ways for evangelical Christians. He's taken some radical stands. He said he's not having sex till he's married. Period. End of statement. And it came out this last week that um, he's been dating former Miss Universe Olivia Culpo. And I don't know who she is. I looked her up. She's definitely not hurting the eyes. I mean, she is a beautiful, beautiful... uh, She won Miss Universe, okay? Well, she dumped him a couple weeks ago because he wouldn't have sex with her. And people are making fun of him left and right. What an idiot! Are you crazy? You're dating Miss Universe, and she wants to be intimate with you. She wants to know you in the biblical way, and you won't go along with it? What's wrong with you? You must have a problem. And you know what he says? I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm saving myself for marriage. That's narrow gate living. And I want to just say to high schoolers, junior hires, grade schoolers, That's a challenge you should accept. Even though the world around you, even though the TV shows you may watch, the movies you may watch, the the peers that you may hear from may say that it's stupid, it's not. It's God's will for your life. Narrow gate living. Number two, Jesus said that followers of Jesus are called to watch out for false teachers and false teachings. Verse 15, Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. 
They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And so two questions. What is false teaching? And you can tell I'm not an English major because this next is not correct, but it should say, who are false teachers? Who are false teachers? Think about that for just a moment. And don't talk to your neighbor this time. Just think about it for a second. I'm not going to give you enough time to talk. But um, this idea of false teaching is not a new concept. It's kind of the whole book of 1 John is really written to, to help followers in the first century be able to identify what's a false teacher. Now, for a lot of people, they might say, well, is it another religion? Well, it could definitely be. But what I think Jesus is talking about here are people that claim to be his followers, people that claim to adhere to the Word of God. But in reality, they're preaching, they're teaching, they're promoting something other than what Scripture is all about. So let me give you four prominent, dominant, false teachings that we see in our world today. Put those up on the screen. The health and wealth gospel. The idea that God just wants you to be rich. God wants you to have your best life now. So just get out the checkbook and give like you've never given before, and you're going to be rich. Um, That's great, except it's not biblical. That's great, except I've met people in India that own one shirt. And from a faith perspective, blow me out of the water. And I don't think God just can't hear their prayers. I just, that's, that, that's a false teaching that's out there today. The idea that if you just love God more, material blessings are coming. Now, are some of us material blessed? Well, all of us are material blessed. But some of us more than others? And if you find yourself rich, man, praise God for that. And use it for his kingdom. But the idea God wants you to be a millionaire, it's laughable. And it's a false teaching. A second false teaching that's out there, and I don't know if there's a preacher really that proclaims it as much as it kind of is a theology that some of us start embracing, and it's a works-based salvation. It's the idea that I've got this big old report card here. And every time I do something good, I get a check mark in the positive. And every time I do something bad, you know, I, I, I get a little mark in the negative, red ink. And as long as my report card is more good than bad, or it's chock full of a lot of good. Went to church, check mark. Wrote a check, check mark. Served the church, check mark. Helped the lady across the street, check mark. Shoveled somebody's snow, check mark. And we find ourselves doing and doing and doing and doing and doing to earn our salvation. The Apostle Paul was really clear in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but God's gift, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't earn your salvation. It's a free gift from God. Should you go to church? Of course. Should you give? You've got a chance later in this service to do that. Should you serve? We've got dozens of places that you can serve. But you're not doing it to earn your salvation. You're doing it because you love God. False teaching number three is this idea of universalism. This idea that everybody's going to be saved. 
The Bible does say, we're going to put a scripture up on the screen later in the, the message today that says God wants all people to be saved. And that is true. God does want all people to save, be saved, but not all people will be saved. Um, a, a prominent preacher several years ago wrote a book entitled Love Wins. And the idea behind it was that because God wants all people to be saved, and because God is God and God will get what He wants, all people will be saved. Not true. And yet, unfortunately, a lot of us, if we're not careful, our theology starts to really be kind of universalistic in nature if we're not careful. And that's a false teaching. And then, has anybody heard of this last thing, moralistic therapeutic deism? Somebody asked me if I made that up in Sunday school class. I really didn't make it up. But um, it's, a, it's a new term, like in the last 10, 11 years, a guy named Christian Smith wrote a book after doing a survey of um, thousands of American Christian teenagers and said that this false teaching is making a lot of inroads in youth groups, teenage youth groups, and teenage Sunday school classes. Teens are eating it up with a spoon. And here's what it is. Let's put this up on the screen. And this is going to sound like seminary class, but, but I want us to understand it. It's the idea that a God exists, there is a God, and He created and ordered the world, and He watches over human life, but that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. That's the big deal. Be good, be nice, and be fair. Now, let me say this. You should be a good person, okay? You should be a nice person, and you should be a fair person. Hear me say that. I'm not saying be a bad person. I'm not saying be a mean person. I'm not saying be a cheat. But I don't think that that's God's greatest desire for your life. Three, the central goal of life, according to this, is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Don't worry, be happy. Look in the mirror and like what you see. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. God's kind of become a butler, right? God, I've got this disease. Help me out. God, I don't have enough money to pay my bills. Help a brother out. God, I need you. Come on down and help me out. And then finally, fifth tenet of this is that good people go to heaven when they die. So it's not about do you have a relationship with the Savior. It's about are you a good person or not. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And so parents, grandparents, teenagers, do you find yourself kind of being sucked into that? That God's greatest desire for your life is that you're happy? Now, I want you to be happy. I want you to feel fulfilled with life. But I'm not sure that God's greatest desire for Greg Taylor is that I'm always happy, but that I'm passionate about serving Him. Why am I sharing all of this with you? Why does this sound seminary class-ish? Because we've got to be able to see false teaching when it's there. I hope you never listen to a sermon at this church and just accept it hook, line, and sinker. I hope you're in the Word. I, I hope you read and you study and you pray. And I would really hope that if you think that there's something that's been taught or, or proclaimed that is false teaching, don't keep it to yourself. Don't go to Facebook. Come, talk, let's study together. Jesus is passionate that we recognize false teaching and we repel false teaching. Third, followers of Jesus are called to do the will of God. This next chunk of Scripture is really troubling for some. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I think the words I'm looking for on Judgment Day are, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into glory. And Jesus says, there's some that are expecting to hear, well done. And they're going to hear, I never knew you. Go away. I never knew you. So, so what is the will of God? That's what this really revolves around, this idea of doing the will of God, knowing the will of God, being in the will of God. Let me say first and foremost, you should always be praying that God's will will be revealed to you for your life. That's a regular prayer. I encourage people all the time, pray that God will open a door if it's meant to be open, and pray that God will close the door if it's meant to be closed, if it's not meant to be. But there are some ways that we can live our life that Scripture says are really in tune with God's will for our life. Anytime you read through the New Testament and it says something like, it is God's will, that's something you want to underline. That's something you want to highlight. That's something you want to pay attention to. So, so let's talk about the will of God. What, what are some things that are aligned with God's will? Well, what about 1 Thessalonians 4.3? Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, it's relevant for all followers of Jesus. He said, it's God's will that you should be sanctified that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And so just kind of time to take a look inside. If that's not how your life is being defined right now, you're living outside God's will. It's that simple. Secondly, 1 Peter 2, verse 15, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. God wants our lives to be good lives. He wants you to be a nice person. If you're mean to your waiter or your waitress at the restaurant, man, stop. Be nice. Be good. Because when Christians act bad, when Christians behave poorly, it harms the gospel. It lets the ignorant people talk foolishly about us. And so it's God's will that our lives would be good lives. It's God's will that we are joyful always, that we pray continually, that we give thanks in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5. That's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I gave you homework two weeks ago. I don't know how many of you went, took me up on that. But I said sometime Thanksgiving week, sit around the table and give thanks. Make it a family exercise if you're in a family. And our family did that. And it was pretty cool. And we're thanking God for his provision. And we're thanking God for his grace. And we're thanking God for the word. And we're thanking God for a house that has heat. And just on and on and on and on. And it's awesome. And you know what? That's not a one day a year exercise, that's an every day of the year exercise. It's God's will that we give thanks and that we pray and that we have joy in our life. What about Romans 12? We know Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then he says, do not conform any longer to the way of the world. Don't look like everybody else, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you're going to be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, His pleasing, and His perfect will. And then finally, 1 Timothy 2, this is good. What is good? To pray for our leaders, to pray for our president, to pray for our governor, to pray for our mayor, 
to pray for our county board, to pray for those people that have been given leadership in this world. Paul says that's good, and it pleases God our Savior because he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Again, all people won't be saved, but when you're kind of countercultural, when you're not always negative, when you're not always hating, and I know we disagree with presidents and governors and mayors and boards and all that stuff, Paul says just pray for them. Love them, encourage them. You know you can pray for someone you disagree with. It's possible. And it'd probably be really good for your soul. Will of God living. All right, finally, number four. Followers of Jesus are called to just do it. And Jesus ends the sermon with a parable, and it's probably not new to most of us. Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who does not hear these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose. The winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Both guys, the wise man and the foolish man, they heard the word. Both dudes had the storms of life visit them. What are the storms of life? It's when life doesn't go like we want it to go. Something kind of messes up. We're not living the storybook any longer. But the man who built his house on the rock, that house stood firm. And the foolish man who heard the words and didn't put them into practice, his house went splat, kaput, all done. So how do we just do it? How do we put the words of Jesus into practice? And I'm going to do this pretty quick, but we've had some great kind of single verses or single ideas the last six weeks in our study that some of us, myself included, we need to get serious about putting it into practice in our lives. We're called to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world. Let's do the next screen. And and we're called to, to put that into practice. We are called to make sure that our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. See, they knew the law, they knew all the the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, but they weren't living it. And Jesus said, you got to be better than them. Your righteousness has to surpass them. We can't just settle for the law. We have to go above and beyond. It's not enough, Jesus said, to just not murder. He said, don't even get angry. It's not enough to say, I'm not going to commit adultery. He said, don't even lust. He said it's not enough to just love your neighbor, love your enemy as well. Jesus said unless your righteousness is done in secret, you're not going to get any praise from me. So when you give, when you pray, when you fast, don't do it for the praise of men or women. Do it for my glory in secret, in your closet. Jesus said, you know what? You better forgive. If you forgive, Father in heaven forgives. If you won't forgive, he's not forgiven. And for some of us right there, man, we're still stuck on that. That sermon was three weeks ago. We did the rock. We wrote on the rock. We we buried it, and we haven't let it go. And we're still hanging on. And Jesus says, just do it. Just forgive. Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth where the moth and rust destroy, but store up treasures in heaven. 
Jesus said no one can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. Jesus said do not judge or you will be judged. Just caveat to what Adam said last week. I want to remind you, this is not anything goes. This is not live your life however you want to live your life. It's get your life together first. Make sure you don't have a big old log in your eye when you're worried about the speck in someone else's. Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. Jesus said, watch out for false prophets. Jesus said, do the will of God. And Jesus said, build your house on the rock of Jesus Christ. How how do we just do it? We take these verses, we take these words, and we put them into practice. And so my bottom line for you today is really simple to say and really hard to do. Jesus calls you to follow, not simply admire. There's enough fans out there. There's enough admirers out there. What this world needs, without a shadow of a doubt, are unapologetic and passionate followers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thanks for today and for the chance to consider how hard it is to follow after you. And man, we've thrown a lot out there the last 25 minutes or so. And it's my prayer that your word will reign supreme in my life and in our lives. And we'll strive for narrow gate living. We'll be aware of false prophets and we'll, we'll rejoice with the truth. We'll never grow tired of seeking your will and doing your will for our lives. And that we'll build your house, build our house on your rock, the rock of Jesus Christ. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. It is commitment time.